that a king would die for us. What do we mean when we say Jesus is king? Well, if there's a king, then there must be a kingdom. And for us to understand how Jesus is king, we in some ways have to understand his kingdom. What is the kingdom that Jesus would reign over and how do we fit into that? That question really sets the stage for where we are today in this series that we've called The Story of God. We've entitled the section that we're on now, Kings and Kingdoms. So let's take just a moment and look at the context of what it means to go from creation to Christ. We've been saying it's a movement. It's all one story. And it's going from when God created the universe and he made us in his image, moving to us knowing him as King Jesus, as our Christ. It's the story of salvation history. As we see how God is not only saving his people, but he's preparing his people for the coming of Christ. How he's moving through a people that he chose and bringing it to the point that he would send the Lord Jesus. Now, as we see God weaving this story together, we know that it is truly all pointing to Christ. So, I'm tempted every week to go back through a review. And I know that that feels more like a a classroom than it does a worship service. But I I would love for us when we finish to not only have our hearts moved to see the story of God, but something in our heads to know that God did have a plan and he brought it all together. So let's take just a minute to go over certain big rocks that we saw as we move through creation, moving toward the coming of Christ. First, the beginnings. In the beginning, God. We know that when God created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image. He desired for them to know him and walk with him. But sin entered the picture. And when sin entered the picture, even there in the book of Genesis, we saw the pointing to Christ. When Adam and Eve tried to cover their own sins, but they couldn't. And God provided a covering for them. And he told them that he would one day judge Satan and he would judge sin in the coming of Jesus. Now, they didn't understand what that was when paradise was lost, but we understand that it was pointing to Christ. Then you move to the season of the patriarchs, where you find not only uh, Noah, and then you move to Abram, but you move through Abraham becoming Abram becoming Abraham. Johnny preached for you one Sunday when I was gone, and then how God was promising Abram that through his seed all the nations would be blessed. So Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And one of them wore a coat of many colors. (laughs) And you remember when he was rejected and sold into slavery and went down to Egypt, God took him from being a slave in, in the dungeon to put him in charge of everything in Egypt. And through his interpreting dreams and then leading the country to save during a period of fruitfulness, preparing for leanness, when the famine came, they had food in Egypt. And so Jacob's other sons decided they would go down to Egypt to find food, and God restored the family there. But that's how the Jews wound up in Egypt. And they stayed there for 400 years in bondage. And while they were there in bondage, 
they began to realize that they needed to be restored to God. And God often does that through our sense of slavery, bring us to the place of realizing that we need a Savior. And so God brought them to the place that they cried out, and he sent Moses in. And Moses was used of God to deliver them. And when he delivered them, he not only took them across the Red Sea, but he received the law from God and the pattern of worship in the tabernacle. And he brought them out so that he could take them in. But they weren't ready to go in. And so when they came to Kadesh Barnea and they sent out the spies, they said, no, we're scared. We're afraid to go in there. And so God let them wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And then when a generation had died out, he raised up Joshua. New Testament word, Jesus. Once again, we see the picture of God taking us into fullness, into the promised land. And we, we, we've heard people talk about the promised land being a picture of heaven. But I reminded you that there were wars to be fought there. And there were fortified cities and there were giants. And just like when we came to Christ, God didn't deliver us from all of the sinful surroundings. And we have to find our identity in Christ as he takes that full and abundant life that he promised us and makes it real to us. So as they entered into the promised land... Then we see where we come now to another big section. And I, I thought about this as I was trying to picture it. I thought that, you know, there are times that you start a story on TV and it will be happening and then you'll see a little sign come up on the bottom, little words on the bottom that says, six weeks earlier. You know, and then it goes back in time and it starts developing the story to explain what happened then. And in many ways, as we look at these Old Testament stories, we're looking for Christ and we're looking for the promise that God made to tell one story. But we have to go back in time to see how he was developing that story to bring us to that point. So today, as we think about that, I, I want to remind you of what 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as Paul is explaining this, and I got to thinking about, you know, the Corinthians weren't all Jewish background people. They, I, I don't know, I haven't studied it lately, but I'm sure there were a lot of Gentiles, if not most. It almost seems to me in Corinth, mostly Gentiles, although he'd started with the Jews. And as you think about those background believers some Jews, some Gentiles, some know the story, knew the story, some didn't. He started explaining in 1 Corinthians 10 about how they'd been led out and how they had uh, rejected God and how God had worked in their lives. And he makes this statement twice, once in verse 6 and once in verse 11. I, I put them both up here side by side so you could see it. He said, now these things became examples for us so that we will not desire the evil things as they did. But then he says it again. These things happened to them as examples and they were written down as a warning to us. So what we're about to look at is another one of those examples, another one of those types, if you will, another one of those foreshadowings to show us the coming of Christ. And we're doing it in this next big section that we're, we're calling kings and kingdoms. 
Let me kind of show you how the kings and kingdoms makes its progression toward the coming of Christ. First, there's the United Kingdom. As Johnny and I were talking this over, he said, now you know you can't say United Kingdom. I said, why can't I say United Kingdom? And I went, oh, they're going to think I'm talking about the United Kingdom. And when I'm talking about that, I talk about the UK, all right? That's not, when I think about whether you are going to look at England or some of you don't ever call a Scottish guy English, okay? And, and whether, you, whether you look at Ireland or whether you look at the other parts historically that have been under that United Kingdom, that's not what we're talking about, all right? What we're talking about is a season in the life of the children of Israel that they had one united kingdom under one king, or should I say under three kings, because the united kingdom only lasted through three kings. The first one, Saul. The next one, David. The third, David's son, Solomon. It's pretty easy to summarize it this way. Saul had no heart for God. David is described as one who had a full heart for God, wholeheartedly he sought the Lord. We'll talk about him next week, and we'll talk about he wasn't a perfect guy, but we'll look at why God chose him to be the foreshadowing of Christ. And then Solomon, his son, who was rich and wise and Foolish all at the same time, all right? So you could say no heart, whole heart, half heart, if you will, to look at those three in the United Kingdom. Following that, the kingdom divided. And when it divided, there was north and south. And we won't spend a lot of time trying to cover all of that history, but I just want you to have a picture in your mind so when you read the Old Testament, it makes sense to you. And so in the divided kingdom, north and south, the, the northern kingdoms went away into exile, never to return. The southern kingdoms went away to Babylon and into exile, and they did return. And when they returned, there's that period of restoration. Then there was 400 years of silence and Christ. So that's the big picture of walking through the Old Testament. So now today as we come to this section that we've entitled the United Kingdom and we, we, kings and kingdoms, let's look and see how this period of kings began. To do so, I want to ask you to look at the last verse in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is between Joshua taking the land and Samuel when the United Kingdom starts and the book of Judges you recall was a time when God they would sin and God would raise up other deliverers and when God would raise up those deliverers he would raise up people like Deborah and Samson and he would raise up those judges and they'd go through this cycle. They would sin against the Lord. They would, they would fall into a bondage and they would cry out to God. And God would send in a judge who would challenge them to follow God. They would repent, put their trust in God. And then they'd get comfortable with all their stuff and they'd fall back into sin again. Remind you of anybody else you know? I mean, maybe we could see ourselves at times in that cycle. The book of Judges ends setting us up for this period that would be called the period of kings. 
it says that every man, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Wow. Think about that. God wanted them to see him as the king. He wanted them to follow him, but they decided that they wanted to do what they wanted because that's what sin does. Sin says, I want it my way. Sin says, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. And when sin tells us that, it's pulling us away from honoring God as our king. God resists the proud, the New Testament says, but gives grace to the humble. And how is our pride most clearly exhibited? Don't tell me what to do. Don't you tell me what to do. We have that pride toward each other, and we have that pride toward God. So as the book of Judges ends, it's helping us to see what happens when we reject God as our king. What do we do? We reject God as king, and we say we're going to do what's right in my eyes, what I want to do. See, God had just shown them in this period of the Judges, generation after generation, that if they would just turn to him and cry out to him, that his ways were right. And you know what? God delighted in being their deliverer. He wanted them to see that he loved them with an everlasting love. He had provided for them ways that they could know him and follow him. And he would deliver them from their enemies. But continuously, they would get comfortable. I remember how Moses said it to them. He said, you're going to go into the land, and you're going to live in houses you didn't build, and drink from wells you didn't dig, and eat from vineyards you didn't plant, and be careful. When it's easy, you'll forget the Lord your God. And that pattern can be repeated over and over in history and maybe in our own lives. We think it's always better for us when things are going well. We sang it this morning. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful. Blessed be your name when things are not going as they should go. But probably if we could just pull up a chair and all of us talk we might be surprised to see the common thread that we were closer to God, quote, closer to God when it was tough than when it was easy. Seeking God more when we needed answers than when everything was comfortable. The people of God rejected him, and they said, no, we want to do it our way. We want to do what's right in our eyes. And into this mess, God raised up a man named Samuel. Do you remember the story of Samuel? <clears throat> On all of these, we could take time to tell their story. Samuel's mother had prayed. God had answered her prayer. She brought back her son and dedicated him to the Lord and handed him over to be raised in the temple. His name means God hears Ask of God, and God answered my prayer. You remember the story of three times he 
kept hearing a voice in the night. And he kept running in and saying, did you call me? No, son, go back to bed. Do, you, do your kids do your kids ever do that, you know? Uh, I need a glass of water, you know? I mean, you know, they, they find ways to get up. My kids learned that, that they could get away with something since they knew I was pastor. They'd heard me preach. They'd say, I think God's talking to me about something. Yeah. Okay, and I'm talking to you about something too. You need to go back to bed, you know? But how do you argue with that? I, I heard something, right? Either I'm scared or the third time, finally the man of God knew what God was doing to young Samuel and said, next time you just say, speak, your, your servant listens. What a great attitude to have toward the Lord. God had raised up Samuel and God was using Samuel like prophet to the people and like a priest to intercede before the Lord and as he was trying to lead them to see that God wanted to be their king the scripture says in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that the people refused to listen to Samuel they said to him no we want to have a king now if we read it all they said you're getting old you're not going to be around long. Your sons aren't very good role models. We can't follow them. So we're beginning to see that we need a king. And Samuel was pleading with them, no, you need to let God be your king. But they were rejecting God as their king. And he said, no, please don't do that. But they said, no, we need a king over us. Catch what verse 20 says. This is pretty strong. Then we'll be like all the other nations our king will judge us, go out before us, and fight our battles. I, I thought that's what God wanted to do. I thought God wanted to tell them that he would point out when they were wrong. I, I thought God wanted to tell them that he would go before them and give them direction. I thought God was the one that was going to fight their battles because he said to them often, just stand still and watch the salvation of your God. I mean, he had made walls fall down just by shouting. He had proven that he could deliver them. But no, they wanted their own way, and they rejected the word of the Lord so they could do it their way. And they said, we want to be like the other nations. Which leads me to principle number two I see in this transition. When we reject God as king, it's because we're saying that we want to do what we want to do. When we reject God as king, we are looking to find our identity in something other than God himself. We want to be like everybody else. So what did your mother say to you when you said, we want to be like everybody else? Am I, am I the only one? So if everybody jumped off the cliff, would you jump off the cliff too? I mean, right? I mean, just something like that, right? They, they had ways of trying to bring that back into focus. But oh, how many times in our rejecting of the Lord, we want to find our identity in something other than him. If I just have that stuff, I'll be satisfied. If I just have that job, 
I'll be satisfied. If I just had more money, we know money can solve every problem, right? Go ask the crew, where was it, South Carolina that won all that money? I don't know. It'll be fun to see how long they have any, all right? And a friend of mine who's a financial advisor talked to me about how Many families are destroyed in just one to two years after the inheritance that comes their way from their parents. So I'm following the philosophy on that bumper sticker that says, in being of sound mind, I spent it all, right? I'm not going to leave anything for the kids, right? So what do we do when we reject God? We want to do it our way but really, we, we don't want to do it our way. We want to kind of do it their way so they will think we're okay. The pattern of what happens when we throw off God's rightful reign and rule over our lives. But then, there's another verse in this story that really grabs me. And it, it shows us how we misunderstand the kingdom when we reject God. When they said, we want to do this so that we'll be like the other nations, God said, go ahead. Give them everything they say they want. And don't be afraid because they've not rejected you. They've rejected me as their king. God says they misunderstood what the kingdom is supposed to be like. And they've thrown off my rightful rule of their lives. But instead, they've decided they'll do it their way so they can be like everybody else. So you just go ahead and give them what they ask for. I know it breaks your heart, Samuel. But they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They misunderstood God's desire to rule over them. Do we ever do that? Do we ever misunderstand that God really, he doesn't want to rule over us just so he can control us or keep us from enjoying life? He wants to be our Lord and King so that he can fulfill us. And give us the very deepest things that we need. I love the phrase that Jesus fills the deepest longing of the human heart. He really does. He is the one that can meet our deepest need to be loved and accepted. Even when we try to get that from our spouse, it doesn't work. He wants us to get it from him. So I then flip the page and say, okay then, so if that's what it means to reject God from being king, what happens when we see that Christ is our king? And as is often the case, it's right the opposite from what we just saw. It goes like this. When we see Jesus as our king, we want what is right in his eyes, not in our eyes. We want what is right from his perspective, not just from our own or someone else's. Remember, 
Jesus said, I was going to close with this first, but I'll go ahead and get to it. He said, he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. I, I think about what it means to serve the Lord. Oh, sometimes it's doing stuff you don't like. Sometimes it's, it's you know, that deep labor of love. But basically what it means to serve the Lord is like what happens when someone serves the table when you go out to eat. A good wait staff learns to watch those who are at the table. And what do they notice? Oh, you you don't have a setup. Let me grab you some silverware and a napkin. Oh, you your glass is running low. Let me fill that up for you again. Oh, you've finished. Let me, let me move that dirty plate from away from you. Oh, do you want some more bread? I mean, you just ate all of that before I could even get back to the kitchen, right? So I guess you want some more bread. So someone who knows how to serve the table knows how to watch what's being served and pick up on the next need. And in many ways, that's what happens when we serve the Lord. We know how to look at his eyes and see where he's looking. We know how to look at his face and see what he's looking at. And when we look where he's looking, often we'll see a need that he wants to meet and we'll hear his whisper, and I want to use you to meet it because you are my hands, you are my feet, you are my body here on earth. So as we see Jesus as our king, we want to do what's right in his eyes. When we see Jesus as our king, we find our identity in the gospel and not from what other people are seeking. What does that mean? The gospel is that God created a perfect world, but it was destroyed by sin. And sin was passed on from that first Adam, and now we all are sinners by nature and by choice. And since we have rejected God's way and done it our way, as the scripture says, every man doing what's right in his own eyes, all we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And because we've demanded to do it our way, our sin has separated us from God. But the good news, that's what gospel means, is that God sent Jesus into a broken world. And he lived among us as the perfect God-man. And when he died on the cross, he didn't die for his sin. He died for mine. And when God laid on him the sin of us all, he offers me an incredible deal. He says, look, you give me your sin, I'll give you my forgiveness. That's the gospel. And so to find our identity in the gospel means that every day, when something really bothers us, we stop and say, why does that bother me? <laughs> and usually we realize it's something we're trying to control, it's something we're trying to gain, it's something we're trying to earn instead of something we're trying to receive from God. And finding our identity in the gospel means that we're looking to Jesus as our king. And then we're beginning to understand that he has an entirely different kind of kingdom. I spent hours this week trying to come up with a simple way to describe the kingdom of God. 
And when I came down to the point of trying to do it, I realized that maybe that'll be next week's sermon. (laughs) Because I couldn't get to it this week. But I'll tell you this. The kingdom of God that Jesus came preaching, that John the Baptist had announced, is an entirely different kind of kingdom. The disciples didn't understand it even after he had been raised from the dead. Go look at Acts chapter 1. He had spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom. And then they said to him, (laughs) proving they still didn't quite get it. Is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, guys, it's not for you to know the times and seasons in the Father's authority. But... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Because the kingdom I've called you to live in and fulfill is the kingdom where my followers, filled with my spirit, will move out and tell the world that Jesus is Lord. So today, He is our King. He has an entirely different kind of kingdom. What about you? I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and wait for a moment. And as you bow before the Lord and let his spirit speak to you, maybe his word has pricked your heart when you saw that they were rejecting God because they wanted to do what was right in their eyes. And maybe God's been telling you, you don't need to do that. And you've been saying, God, I want to do it my way. Leave me alone. All you have to do is say, God, I know I'm wrong. And I need to be forgiven. And he's so kind and so tender and so loving to receive his children back to himself. Maybe today you've been caught up in seeking your identity in something other than the Lord. And he's put his finger on the stress that you've been causing by seeking stuff and position, possession and None of that would satisfy the longing of your soul. So he says, just come to me and see that I've done everything you need when I died for you and was raised from the dead. Accept my gift of forgiveness and eternal life and let it be full and abundant in you. Or maybe he says, you've been seeking the wrong kind of kingdom. Something that nothing on this earth can ever establish. So come to me. And lay down what you've been seeking. And find your fulfillment in me. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We were singing and praying, knowing that one day the kingdom that we are pursuing will be fulfilled in your return. But now we pray your kingdom will be fulfilled in our hearts 
because we humble ourselves before you, King Jesus. Would you be pleased to convict us now by your Spirit, comfort us by your Spirit, and confirm us by your Spirit, even as we come to the place of prayer and lay down everything from our hands and seek you. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.